Let me pray. We are all weak, sir, in any number of ways. And maybe our greatest weakness is not even wanting to admit that we are. But I would pray that in the weakness of my soul right now, that through the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, I might speak that which is acceptable in your sight. And that by the end of our time together, being prepared for the means of grace that is this meal, that we might see you again as a rock, a redeemer, and the one worthy of praise, even when our hearts are sorrowful. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, about to show you a clip that happened 12 years ago, and it would not surprise me if you're at least one of the 870 million views this thing garnered. Ready? Go. Charlie, Charlie bit me. Twelve years later, 870 million views. You know what? They put that on YouTube. That family, through the royalties, made a million and a half bucks. So, do any of you have a camera? Somebody pull my finger. And a million and a half bucks by some kid biting his little brother's, older brother's finger. Now, why do I show that to you? Not only because it's a, a now um, forever fixed in, in iconic um, popular cultural um, history, but because of this. What happens in that moment is not just funny. It's a metaphor. Because, yeah, in the moment, Charlie beats, bites his finger and there's pain. But what's even, I think, what compounds that moment is not just that his finger hurts. It's this look of disbelief. What in the world? You're my little brother. All I do is put my finger in your mouth. I can't believe you did that to me. And that, friends, is an experience that kids across the world have, but I would dare say it's what we all experience at some point in some context, perhaps in a much more profound and maybe even tragic way. What that was was a little picture of a rude awakening. And the thing is, We all have that moment. We all have a rude awakening. Here as we round off our summer, we're listening to stories. Stories that Jesus likes to tell. The stories that we know from him that are called parables. And as we've said from week to week, those parables have different purposes, different functions at different times. Sometimes the stories are out to encourage. Sometimes the stories are out to confront. But every single one of those stories does one thing, and that's to provoke us to thought to encourage us to think very well about what we're doing and how to respond to what we're doing. 
And that's what the parables are out to do. And surely this one will. This parable that Jesus is going to share with us is a parable out to tell us that we're bound for a rude awakening. But that awakening is not just rude. Jesus would have us to know that it is actually perhaps even necessary. And the question is, what do we do with that? How shall we respond to that other than just exclaiming, I think my finger just got bit. So listen to this parable. I'm sure you've heard it before. We're going to come at it with three questions. What is the way things are? And then given the way things are, what's the way forward? And if that's the way forward, where do we find the strength to walk in that way? The way it is, the way forward, the strength to walk in that way. If you're able to stand, we're picking up where Jesus left off in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then he left the crowds and went into the house. And the disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out his kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, he who has ears, Let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Every text has a context, and every story is part of a larger story. And surely this story that Jesus tells is part of his story. And that story, as you know, begins with Jesus already having made a splash by this point in his ministry. He's already turned heads, furrowed brows, excited people, or incensed them. And just before he gets there, John the Baptist comes and he says, Somebody's coming whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie, who's going to come and bring judgment. And you think, wow, there's an advanced team warming up the crowd. But sure enough, there he is, and then Jesus comes, and Jesus begins to speak, and then he appears, and then he's baptized, and then he starts talking about this thing called a kingdom, a kingdom of God, a kingdom that he himself is coming to usher in. And if you're in that day, and you're on the margins of society, and you're a downcast kind of person, and you're full of despair, you hear Jesus speak, and you think, maybe this is the one we've been waiting for. 
Maybe this is the one who will finally call the evildoers to account. Maybe this is the one we've hoped for, we've longed for, and now we're finally seeing it. And that excitement, that enthusiasm, that sort of hope, the only thing that rivals that enthusiasm is the disillusionment they all feel when they see the same guy speak, act, get betrayed, get arrested, get indicted under false charges, get convicted, and then get executed on a tree. Great hope met with great bewilderment and disillusionment. And before that narrative arc plays out, Jesus tells this parable. And that parable is about a master who owns a field, who goes out and plants seed. And he's out to see wheat grow fully and furnished and and full of great here, and full of great wheat and great um, flourishing. And then in the midst of it, something happens. They go to sleep, and somebody, the parable says, comes out and plants something else. They know not what. And the next morning, again, it's a compressed storyline, boom, something's sprouting. What is it? It's wheat, but it's also weeds. What's gone on? Something's happened. Something's sprouting. And when it comes to hearing that weeds are growing in a field, we might think, um, man, Jesus, uh, that's the best you got. Slow news day, right? Come up with a story about weeds and wheat. What's the big deal? Because weeds were more than a nuisance. Um, last week I told you about my hapless attempts to grow grass in a, in a yard naturally. And I swear, I, no lie, one day I got out there, I was committed. I spent four hours in my yard picking out 14 varieties of weed, thinking surely something will grow now. Because it was a nuisance, surely it would grow. In that day when you're talking about weeds, you're not talking about a nuisance, you're talking about an enemy. Weeds grow on your wheat, you got a problem. Look, when the, when the Nazis besieged Leningrad in 1942, a million people died because they cut off the food supply. You can go to St. Petersburg now and see the monument to the million people that died because they cut off the supply route because there was nothing going to come through. When Jesus talks about a parable about weeds and wheat, you're talking about something that you're not just frustrated by, but you're terrified by because it will kill you. Something's got to be done. And in that moment, there's fear and that panic. And, and we're asking ourselves the question, what is, what is Jesus getting at here? He's not bringing a story about agriculture. He's talking about spiritual reality. That in him, God has come to seed the world, to, to sow it, to, to see it sprout, to see it cultivated. And what does he have to see cultivated? This thing he calls the kingdom. And we talk about it all the time. And what is the kingdom? Where does the kingdom go? The kingdom goes where people are, first of all, persuaded. They're persuaded that they are worse than they ever knew, and yet at the same time persuaded that they're more adored than they could ever imagine. They are persuaded of that. It, it, It gets with them. It gets inside of them, and they believe it. And when they are persuaded of that, something happens. They're then compelled to act in the same way with the same love of the love that's been shown them. When they come to discover that God is so for them that he would die for them, that they themselves would be willing to die for anyone that they might know of that love. That's where the kingdom goes. And we think, perfect, sounds like a great plan. What is it with these weeds? What's going on there? Why does Jesus tell this parable when he talks about the kingdom in all other places? Because he's trying to tell us the way things are. Here's reality, folks, those who are listening then, those who are listening now. This is it. This is your father's world. This is where you grow. Even in a place where there is hope, where there is love, where there is faith, something else is present. There is a 
proximate, potent, persevering presence of opposition. It's the way things are. Why is it that believers in Hong Kong and all over China who have been faithful, who have demonstrated great care and courage and respect and love in the face of all adversity, why are they again under the thumb of a regime? Why is that happening there again? Why in our world, closer to home, why do we find the church being opposed at almost from every angle in so many different ways? And I'm just talking about the way in which that opposition comes from without. Look, there's all sorts of weeds that are growing up from within the body. You want to talk about corruption or mistreatment or abuse or deceit? We got our share of it. And so what is it that the, what is it that the, 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 the servants reflect when they see the weeds sprouting forth? They, they, they're almost bewildered. They say there in verse 27, And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? I thought this was a world. I thought this was your world. I thought you were overseeing it. I thought that there were seed that you brought out. How, how is this? And you know what? That, that's the question for everybody, right? Kids, look, I know you go to Sunday school, you go to youth group, you hear from your parents, and they talk to you about how this is the world that God has made, and God loves it, and he's good, and he does good things in it, and then stuff happens. Then, I don't know, your parents get divorced, your sister dies, somebody you love gets really, really sick, and you're looking around going, I thought this world was safe. I thought this world was good. What Jesus is doing in the parable is just trying to do what what good parents do. They they can't protect you from everything that will harm you. It's impossible. But they can try to soften the blow a little bit. Jesus is trying to awaken us to a reality that even in the midst of our shock, that shock might be tempered a little bit. Um, You know the moment in the Fellowship of the Ring when um, Frodo is in the mines of Moria with all the fellowship and, um, you know, everything's going wrong, okay? And uh, Frodo is beginning to rethink his decision ever to leave the Shire and join the fellowship and try to head to Mordor. And he's telling this to Gandalf, and he goes, I wish the ring had never come to me, man. And Gandalf says to him, Frodo, you know that there are forces at work in this world other than evil too. That what you see right now is everything that is arrayed against you. I'm just here to remind you that there are other forces at work besides the forces of evil. And so that is to be an encouraging thought. And in that moment, Gandalf is doing for Frodo what Jesus is doing for us, but in a slightly different way. Jesus is saying, I know stuff happens. I know you find yourself feeling unsafe in this moment. But God is not surprised by that. And so even in this world in which you will have trouble, in which there is opposition that is as close as your next breath to everything that's going well, Jesus is here to tell us, don't panic. I know your first response is to be afraid and to wonder, is God just busy elsewhere or is he he there at all? But he's there to encourage us that he gets it. He knows it. He's aware of it. His hands are not tied by it. And though, look, Jesus in the parable is not trying to line out for us a massive explanation about why there is evil in the world. I mean, if you just think about it, what explanation to you would be enough to explain to you all the reasons there's evil in the world, and you would say, oh, okay, I'm fine with that. 
There is no explanation. But Jesus is out to tell us, look, I I know it happens, and it's still your father's world. Don't panic. I know you want to be afraid. I know it's your inclination to be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, I know the older you get, there comes a point in which you have this experience. You had a great plan. You had a great strategy, and you put yourself with all your heart into it. And then how does it unfold? It feels like there's a conspiracy against you rather than any kind of collaborative effort to see that world and what will unfold. That's everybody's story. Jesus is saying, don't panic. Your labor is not in vain. I know it, he says. But how you think about realizing that this is the way the world is is not the only thing Jesus is out to challenge in the parable. It's not just how you think and feel. It's also to challenge you about what do you do in response. He's told us about the way things are. Now he wants to talk to us about what, what, what do we do? What's the way ahead? What's the way forward? And you hear the real natural inclination about one way forward in the midst of the potent, proximate, perseverant presence of opposition. You hear what the reapers say in verse 28. Do you want us to go and gather them? In other words, you want us to hit that field, find that wheat, grab it by the roots and unroot it. Let's be done with it, man. Let's get rid of it. It's choking our crop. It's going to affect our food supply. Let's get rid of it. Let's be done with it. That's the natural response. And when we we fast forward to 2019, we know that there are plenty of of constituencies and subgroups and and other demographics out there that that the opposition to what the church is doing is not merely, man, church, love you, not for you, but man, you got a clean house. No, that opposition comes in the fact or in the form of, I want to see your house burned to the ground. It's out there. And in some places, it's dangerous. And in our instant like that, our first response is, I'd like to silence and eliminate and eradicate that presence from the face of the earth to wipe the field of them. And Jesus' words to us in the midst of that inclination is, cut it out. Hold your fire. Just wait. And we hear that and we go, wait, 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 wait. Don't go after it? Why? He tells you in verse 29. Why, why restrain ourselves in some form or fashion? Because he says, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root them up, wheat, you root, root up the wheat along with them. Okay. Huh? Before the day of selective herbicides, where you could spray everything and only the weeds die, weeds grow up in your field along with wheat, That weed has so intertwined its root system with your wheat. Weeds have so intertwined with the root system of your wheat that if you pull up the weeds, you're going to pull up the wheat. All right, great. It's a nice little agricultural lesson for the first century. What is the point? What is the principle he's out to defend here? It's this. I know your natural inclination is to go for the jugular when it comes to the opposition. But Jesus is telling us that the impulse to silence or eliminate the opposition will often do more harm than good. You may argue against it. You may confront it to your face, confront it to their face. But if you're out to silence it, to eliminate it, to eradicate it, you have signed yourself up for danger. 
you have walked on a path that is full of landmines. Now, as soon as that, that phrase comes out of my mouth, we've got to put it in context, right? Because uh, Jesus is not saying to us, you all just need to be nice. Because as soon as he says those words, you've got to remember, what else has Jesus done? How, how has he responded in the face of his forms of opposition? He's faced it. He's answered it with truth. He's opposed hypocrisy. He's defended people for whom, against whom all sorts of manner of unkindness and uncharitableness was coming their way. He's defended them. He's even given us guidance on how do we go to a person whom we think is on a path towards destruction. It's not just sort of sit there. And if you don't remember that other parable, he says, if any of you caused these little ones to stumble or to lose faith in me, it would be better if they hung a millstone around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. That's not Jesus being nice. So what is he pushing back against, really? When he himself was the one to come against that kind of opposition, what he's saying is, beware of acting in the extreme with either verbal or physical violence in such a way that you think, if I can just eliminate them, they'll be done. Look, if I did a little thought experiment with you, who do you think is that demographic out there that you think most threatens the flourishing of the church? You might think of somebody in particular. And then in your next mental breath, you might also think to yourself, if we could just shut them up, if we could just be rid of them, eliminate them, everything would be better. Jesus is saying, stop it. He's not inviting us to passivity. There are plenty of ways he intervenes on behalf of someone that he's out to love. Love gets angry sometimes because anger is out to defend that which one loves. It's proper. It's necessary. It's good. But he is saying, you've got to be careful of the impulse when you think it's so righteous that you don't even realize how much you're tempted towards self-righteousness. He's out to warn against a response in the extreme. And that's why Paul will say to us in Romans chapter 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul gets it, what Jesus is out to say here. Yeah, I know there's going to be plenty of moments when you are opposed. And in that moment, your first instinct is to say, really, let's get this. Let's do this. I want to show you a picture of what it looks like, and, and it's, it's, an, it's an illustration in the extreme, okay? Um, but it captures, I think, the heart of maybe what Jesus is coming at here that we all might experience perhaps in a, in a much smaller scale. And I've shown you this clip before. It's from Spielberg's film called Munich, and it's all about the way Israeli intelligence or the Israeli government sought to respond to the kidnapping and the massacre of the 1972 Olympic wrestling team. And Mossad, which is the equivalent of the CIA, dispatched um, mercenaries to go out and take out one by one, surgical strike after surgical strike, everyone that they thought was responsible for the kidnapping and massacre of that team. And they do so, and they're very effective at their job. But in this scene, you see two of those assassins start to have a conversation about whether or not there's a greater cost to what they're trying to accomplish. So you're really going to kill him? 
all this blood comes back to us. Eventually it will work. Even if it takes years, we'll beat them. We're Jews, Evan. Jews don't do wrong because our enemies do wrong. We can't afford to be that decent anymore. I don't know that we ever were that decent. Suffering thousands of years of hatred doesn't make you decent. But we're supposed to be righteous. That's a beautiful thing. That's Jewish. That's what I knew. That's what I was taught. And now I'm losing it. And I lose that. That's 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 that's, that's everything. That's my soul. What felt on the front end as a real righteous mission to take out that which was opposing them, they're now beginning to wonder if in the effort to wipe the field clean of what opposes them, whether there's something they're giving up that's even of greater cost than what they've lost. Now, I'm not under any illusions that any of you are thinking about becoming an assassin. But I know in my own heart, which may be true of your heart, that there are moments in which you are so convinced that you are so right that you might be tempted to think if I could just shut you up that everything would be better. What Jesus is arguing here is, first of all, to be undaunted. Don't be afraid. I know the weeds grow up with the wheat. I get it. But he's also arguing for a form of restraint in certain moments when your impulse to eradicate starts to bubble to the surface. Undaunted restraint is what he's asking us to follow in. That's what the parable is out to teach us. And you and I say that, and in the comfort of our nice green chairs here in 73 degrees on a lovely August day, we're all going, of course, pastor, I would never do such a thing. Yeah, you can. Yeah, I do. I need something more than a principle, though, to push back against that impulse. He's talked about the way things are. He's told us about the way ahead. But where do I find the strength to walk in that way that feels rather unnatural to me? Remember that scene in The Empire Strikes Back when Han Solo is about to be encased in carbonite, you know, frozen stiff for the bounty hunter, Boba Fett, right? I know, you memorized it. <laughs> and in that moment... Chewbacca, Han Solo's trusted friend, just goes postal on any stormtrooper he can find. And he's even in shackles. He's got the princess there and he just goes nuts. And what does Han Solo say? Stop it! Not now! Don't do this! Save your strength! There'll be another time. There'll be another time. Just take care of the princess. In that moment, as trivial as that is, to bring up that as an illustration to where Jesus is going here, he's saying, look, just wait. Something's coming. There'll be another time. And he gets that in verse 30 when the master of the field, when asked, should we uproot it? He says, no, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Um, I could go read you Jesus' explanation about what that rather vivid picture looks like, but I don't think you need any help in figuring out what does he mean. Jesus is saying, there is a justice still to come. There is a righteousness that will prevail. You don't know when that moment is. 
It might be a long way off, but that day is coming. That there will be a day when everything that is broken will be mended. And everything that is unjust will be made just. Look, you and I, we think about history most of the time. The way we think, we're in a mode of saying history is just one big random unfolding of events where just the slightest little thing or even big things just change the course and arc of where everything goes. And we think it all comes down to human agency and some random um, things that just occur. That's how we usually think history happens. Jesus is, if you might, we'll say, gently suggesting an alternative way of looking at the way things unfold. That there is a trajectory. Things are headed in a way. As random and is what feels like circumscribed by our choices, it seems to be. And that day, a justice, a judgment awaits. And so you hear Jesus say, when the Son of Man comes, guess who he's referring to? Himself. He is the one who has come to sow the world with the word in which the kingdom might be seeded and sprout and cultivated and grow. And then he talks about the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one. And he talks about a judgment. And as soon as we hear those words, there's part of us that goes, ah. Jesus is 2019, man. We don't, we don't operate on that black and white world anymore, putting people in two categories. We don't, we don't like, remember, the, remember the, the line from Sunset Limited last week? The professor says to, to the black guy, you, you, you see the world black and white. It helps you see things in a more simple frame, right? right? That's kind of where we are gradations between black and white? Nah, it's not showing up here. Jesus has two camps. Sons of the kingdom, sons of evil. And we go, man, uh, talk about outdated. And people have that objection when you hear a word like that. And I get it. It's legit. There's even a greater objection, but you've got to pan out a little bit more. Like, it's one thing to say black and white, sons of the kingdom, sons of the evil. But think about this. Jesus is talking about a future justice, a future judgment. And, and most people in most places, um, um, in the way they come for today, they would say, see, here's one more example of psychological manipulation to coerce people into a form of compliance. Scare them about the future. Ooh. And then they'll fall in line. Look, those are two objections a lot of people operate on. And believe me, there's a part of me that goes, what do I do with you, Jesus? Because there's all sorts of beliefs behind my background there. But let me just sort of say that the answers that Jesus might give to those two objections are actually the same answer to why, where we can find our strength to walk in the way of undaunted restraint. Say that again. The answers to those objections are the same answer we might give to how we find the strength to find undaunted restraint. What do I mean? Jesus talks about the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one. And we hear that and go, what? And he said them. And you can't say that he didn't say them. You can't take them out of his mouth. But you can see all of those words also and also what he's done. What did Jesus do? He went to those whom society considered enemies And what did he do? He didn't look down at them. He didn't walk away from them. He didn't avoid them. And he engaged them. He sat with them. He chatted them up. He invited himself over for dinner. He ate food with them. He loved them. He let them weep on his feet and say thank you for his kindness. He didn't avoid them. The misfits, the ones who were different. He went to them. 
And so for him to do that, he has a kind of credibility to speak in a certain way. He has sort of moral weight to him because he's the one who not only loved and turned into friends those whom society considered enemies, he died for enemies to make them his friends. That's the gospel. If all he did was say there's sons of the kingdom and sons of the evil one, then we might go, man, you see him black and white. But when you see what he did, you got to at least give him a little respect and go, maybe you have a little moral authority to speak in that way as much as it cuts across the grain of the way I think in the way 2019 thinks. He's the one who died for enemies to make them his friends. Okay, but fine. Okay, so maybe that first objection maybe is not quite as clear-cut as I might thought. But what about the second one? The whole thing about justice and judgment and fiery furnaces and all that stuff. Can't go there. Won't do that. Not going to go there. Look, I get that. And there's plenty of preachers in this world who will love to run with that line and beat people over the head with it. And that's why you hear a story about a 29-year-old pastor named Robert Murray McShane when a friend of his asked him, what did you preach today? And he said, I preached on hell. And his friend asked him, did you do so with tears? No one ever gets a thrill about talking about justice and judgment. But here's the thing about that objection. If you say that there is no justice and there is no final judgment, if you say that, you have sought to prove too much. You have said there will not be any final justice for anything. The name you know is a name, Rachel Den Hollander. She was one of those Olympic gymnasts who was abused by the Olympic coach named Nasser. She's a believer. She gave the first victim impact statement. I encourage you to go put in her name and read that story. And she said to him, to his face, There is a justice that's coming, but there is a forgiveness that is available, and that forgiveness is available in Jesus. And if you repent of that, even you will be covered. What she said proves nothing about whether it's true or false that there will be a judgment, but you'd have to look her in the face and say there is no judgment just because you don't like the idea of judgment. You prove too much by trying to dismiss the possibility that there might be a final justice. You also dismiss the possibility that God actually might be loving. And on that count, let me appeal to a fellow pastor over in Nashville named Scott Sauls who said this. For love to be truly loving, there must be judgment. If there is no judgment, then there is no hope for a slave, a rape victim, a child who's been abused or bullied, or people who've been slandered or robbed or had their dignity stolen. If nobody is called to account before a cosmic judgment seat for violence and oppression, then the victims will never see justice. We need a God who gets angry. We need a God who will protect his kids, who will once and for all remove bullies and perpetrators of evil from his playground. I don't like talking about justice or judgment either. I don't have fun doing that. It's not what I lead with. But if you dismiss it out of hand, you've cut too much off. And I don't think Scott Sauls has experienced a lot of physical violence or that kind of thing, but I do know somebody named Miroslav Volf, a Croatian who grew up during the Serbo-Croatian world, who's a believer, who said this, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. What Jesus is out to do in the story implicitly is this. 
you and I, myself included, can have a very distorted view of judgment and justice. That distortion can go in the one direction of saying, I just don't like it. It makes my skin crawl. I don't want to harm people. I don't want to coerce people into it. But when I, my, if all of those things take center stage, I can sort of dismiss it out of hand and say it just doesn't exist. But I also can have a distorted view of justice and judgment if I obsess about it. If that's my controlling principle. Look, if what you are moved more by Jesus is the fear of judgment, if you are moved more by that than being compelled by his love, you and I have a long way to go in understanding both. If you think his primary intention is for you to take refuge in him because it's all about judgment, you don't understand. He wants you to take refuge in his love. The same love that, if you will, brought him to enact this parable in his own life. He's the one who planted himself among the weeds. He's the one who put himself in the field to bring nourishment to the world, but placed himself among the weeds until those weeds choked him to death. Why? That he might see that weeds turn into wheat. That's his aim. That's his purpose. That's the story he tells. That's the story he lives. And so when we come to this table and we eat of this bread, bread made of wheat, you and I have to remember that wheat was harvested alongside the weeds and those weeds were out to kill him, but he let those weeds kill him so that he might turn those weeds into wheat. That's the gospel. And that's why in our weakness we come to the table. It's the way the world is. Don't panic. And this is the way forward. Act with restraint. But the strength to find it is to trust what he did. To trust what will come because of the way he's already worked. He took the judgment. He knows how to act it with great care and great clarity. Let's pray. Father, I confess to you how uneasy I am to speak of those things. I confess that before my brothers and sisters and guests. And I would only ask that you would help us all to see his love above all things. A love that is out to defend certain things. A love that acts in a holy way. A love that is good and that will never let us go. Oh, Father, help us to hear that. And help us then on the basis of that truth, act with an undaunted restraint. If we haven't been, we will be rudely awakened. We ask that you might hold us and that we might find refuge in your rest. In Jesus' name, amen.